Harry Ironside was a Canadian preacher. He lived in the early years of the 20th century. One Sunday, he was speaking to some Salvation Army workers who he'd met in the street. They were doing an open-air meeting in the San Francisco area. And as he was speaking, he noticed a well-dressed man on the edge of the crowd. And this man had taken a card out of his pocket and written something on it. And then he passed it forward. And as um, Ironside looked at the card, he he immediately recognised the man's name. He was called Arthur Morrow Lewis. He was a well-known early socialist and a lecturer who travelled the country opposing Christianity. And on the back of the card, he'd written these words. Sir, I challenge you to debate with me the question, agnosticism versus Christianity, in the Academy of Science Hall next Sunday afternoon at four o'clock. I will pay all expenses. Ironside looked at the card and then he read it out loud so everyone could hear and he replied with these words. I'm very much interested in this challenge. Therefore, I'll be glad to agree to this debate on the following conditions. Namely, that in order to prove that Mr Lewis has something worth fighting for and worth debating about, he will promise to bring with him to the hall next Sunday two people whose qualifications I will give in a moment as proof that agnosticism is of real value in changing human lives and building true character. First, he must promise to bring with him one man who was for years what we commonly call a down-and-outer. I'm not particular as to the exact nature of the sins that had wrecked his life and made him an outcast from society, whether he was a drunkard or a criminal of some kind or a victim of his sensual appetite, but a man who for years was under the power of evil habits from which he could not deliver himself, but who on some occasion entered one of Mr Lewis's meetings and heard his glorification of agnosticism and his denunciations of the Bible and Christianity, and whose heart and mind, as he listened to such an address, were so deeply stirred that he went away from that meeting saying, from now on I too am an agnostic. And as a result of imbibing that philosophy, found that a new power had come into his life. The sins he once loved, he now hates. And righteousness and goodness are now the ideals of his life. He's now an entirely new man, a credit to himself and an asset to society. All because he's an agnostic. Secondly, I would like Mr Lewis to promise to bring with him one woman who was once a poor, wrecked, characterless outcast the slave of evil passions, the victim of corrupt living, utterly lost, ruined and wretched. But this woman also entered a hall where Mr Lewis was proclaiming his agnosticism and ridiculing the message of the scriptures. And as she listened, hope was born in her heart. And she said, this is just what I need to deliver me from the slavery of sin. She followed the teaching and became an intelligent agnostic. As a result, her whole being fled from the degradation of the life she'd been living. She fled from the den of iniquity where she'd been held captive. And today, rehabilitated, she's won her way back to an honoured position in society and is living a clean, virtuous and happy life, all because she is an agnostic. Now, he said, if you promise to bring these two people to me as examples of what agnosticism can do, I will promise to meet you at the Hall of Science at four o'clock next Sunday, and I will bring with me at least 100 men and women who for years lived in lives just like that, as I have tried to depict, but have been gloriously saved through believing the good news which you ridicule. 
I will have these men and women with me on the platform as witnesses to the miraculous saving power of Jesus and a present-day proof of the truth of the Bible. Dr. Ironside then turned to the Salvation Army captain and he asked her, Captain, have you got anyone who could go with me to such a meeting? And she said, well, we can give you at least 40 from just this group and we'll give you a brass band to lead the procession. (laughs) Fine, said Ironside. Now, Mr. Lewis, I have no difficulty in picking up 60 others from various missions, gospel halls and evangelical churches. And if you promise just to bring two such exhibits with you, I will come marching in at the head of such a procession with the band playing Onward Christian Soldiers and I will be ready for the debate. Now, Lewis had a sense of humour and he smiled wryly and just waved his hand and said, OK, nothing doing, and then edged his way out of the crowd. Why do I stop with that story? Now, not to take a cheap shot at agnosticism or atheism, not at all. We welcome sceptics and people who are exploring faith or have no faith. We welcome them to this church and we are glad you're with us. But the story makes a key point that you must reckon with. And it's this. The message of Jesus changes people. The message of Jesus changes people. Sometimes the most dramatic transformations take place. Not always, but always there's, if there's a genuine conversion, there is real change. And if you know a Christian well, you will have seen that, if they're a true follower of Jesus Christ. And no other message has that same power. Now, you must take that into account as you explore Christianity's truth claims. How do you account for that power, for the change? We're working our way through the Gospel of Mark on Sundays at the moment, and our series title, you can see it on the slide, is The Story That Changes Everything. And those who Harry Ironside spoke about would surely agree that it does. In our text today, we've just read an extreme example of someone, a man, whose life was an absolute disaster complete wreck. Yet after encountering Jesus, he's found sitting, clothed, and in his right mind. Restored to community. The change is so radical that people are more terrified by what's happened to the man than by what happened to the pigs. Now this is the story that changes everything. The first four chapters of Mark's Gospel, we've had this kind of roller coaster, breathtaking introduction to Jesus. The first half of the book is really asking the question, who is he? And establishing Jesus' criteria, his credentials, who he is, his identity. Jesus is utterly unique. No one has ever seen anything like this before or since. And so naturally, the question on everyone's lips is, who is this man? In chapter one, we were introduced to Jesus. The secret was revealed to the readers. He is the Messiah, the Son of God. And those are two terms that mean God's king. He's given God's Holy Spirit, descending on him like a dove. He announces the kingdom of God has come near now that he's here. And he gives a royal summons to everyone. Repent and believe the good news. Turn and follow Jesus. Okay, the king's here, but where's the kingdom? Chapters 1 to 3, Jesus demonstrates his authority. His authority over the physical world, over all kinds of sickness. He can heal anyone. Spiritual authority over the unclean spirit world. He can exorcise demons, liberate people who've been possessed. Intellectual authority. He teaches with great gravitas and personal authority. He doesn't say, like everyone else in the Bible, thus says the Lord. Jesus says, truly I say to you. 
Now, all of this is too much for some people. The leadership of Israel reject him. The, the religious leadership and the secular leadership, they start plotting early in the book to kill Jesus. They must have been away with him. But we're still asking, where's the kingdom? Where's the kingdom? And so in chapter 4, Jesus began to teach about the kingdom with little stories called parables. They're designed, they're a bit like an, a mental Rubik's cube. You have to kind of fiddle about with a parable to understand what it is and to line it all up. He says the kingdom is like a growing seed it's planted in the ground and night or day, no matter what you're doing, if you're sleeping or waking, it can't be stopped, it still grows. It's also like a mustard seed. It was known as the smallest seed you could find, tiny little thing. But it starts tiny and it becomes this huge plant. Enormous tr- plants, these mustard trees, mustard seeds. Uh, trees And the kingdom, he says, comes into the lives of those who hear the word of Jesus and, and that comes and receive it deep into their hearts and they grow and change and produce a crop. This kingdom is not like an earthly kingdom that's established by political intrigue and military power. It's just a kingdom of the word that comes in and changes lives and hearts. But it is a viable kingdom. It is visible. You can see it in people. It is valuable and eventually will be vast okay we've got the king and now we're seeing the kingdom so the question today is this how do you enter the kingdom how do you join Jesus family how can we experience this life changing truth and the answer is by faith by faith to enter the kingdom You need faith in the king. The faith in the king. And this is the main point of the two stories that we read today. These stories are very different, aren't they? One of them set in a boat during a violent storm. The other one's on dry land with this crazy confrontation with a demon-possessed man containing the curious incident of the pigs. And the reaction of the townspeople. All this is going on. But the theme, the thread that ties these two stories together is faith. To enter the kingdom, you need faith in the king. And here we're going to learn what faith is all about and what it's not. Because faith is not necessarily a simple thing, but we can learn what it really is. These stories teach us essential lessons about faith. And I want to focus on three sets of characters in these stories. The disciples, the demons, and the denizens. And you know I chose the word denizen because I had to find a word that began with D, and it was better than townspeople. (laughs) Disciples, demons, and denizens might help you to remember. First of all, the disciples, we pick it up in um, chapter 4, verse 35. That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, these are the close followers, let us go over to the other side. They're by the lake or the Sea of Galilee. And so they leave the crowd behind, and they take Jesus along in the boat, and there's other boats as well. But it says here, a furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Now those who know about such things, geographers and meteorologists uh, explain that the Sea of Galilee is in a kind of a bowl uh, in, in land formation and so a storm can brew up very fast, unexpectedly, if the conditions are right. And we know that Jesus, some of Jesus' disciples were actually fishermen. They'd grown up sailing the lake. They're experienced mariners. So they take him in the boat with them. And it all looks good. But suddenly, out of nowhere, this furious 
storm breaks out. And the thing is, it's so intense that these experienced fishermen think they're going to die. Now, I would not want to be caught in a storm like that. People have written poems and stories about this over the years. Sometimes there are storms that are so intense, it doesn't, you can't tell whether you're up or down or whether it's night or, or day. And it's one like that. And it says that the waves are filling the boat. And there they are, being tossed around like a little matchstick boat on the ocean. And they're terrified. And in the middle of all this, Jesus is asleep. Those who know about the material culture of those days have said that often there was some kind of a large cushion or pillow placed in the back of the boat, somewhat as ballast, but also where people could rest. It's one of those little eyewitness details that come in all the time into the Gospels. And there is Jesus asleep. Now, what does that tell us? It tells us something about the two natures of Jesus. He's a unique person. Jez already hinted about it earlier on when he was talking about Christmas. Jesus Christ is unique. On on the one hand, we see here he's utterly human. He is exhausted. He's been labouring hard, teaching and preaching at the top of his voice and dealing with people and all their needs and sickness and suffering. And he's poured himself out for hours and hours and eventually the disciples have just said, let's get him in a boat. He's, He's just worn out. And there he is and he's asleep. Shows us the humanity of Jesus Christ. We'll see more about his divinity in a moment. But also it shows us something else about Jesus. In the Psalms, particularly the the poetry uh, bit in the middle of the Bible, often the one who is truly trusting in God, who has complete confidence and trusts in God and has deep faith, is one who can sleep. (laughs) I wonder if there's anyone here who struggles to sleep. One who can sleep. If you're not able to sleep, then maybe somewhere deep down you're not actually trusting in God. Jesus could sleep in a storm like that. But uh, the disciples are not quite so confident in God. And they scream out. You notice what they said? Verse 38. Teacher, don't you care if we drown? Now this is an interesting comment, isn't it? So it's not just, Jesus, in case you hadn't noticed, there's this huge storm going on here, and even you're quite wet, and you've been sleeping in the back of the boat, and we think we might die. It's, don't you care? So all that they've learned about Jesus so far is worth nothing, because all their confidence and courage has just melted away. They're absolutely terrified. They think they're going to die. And so Jesus stands up, and what does he do? He rebukes the wind... And he says to the waves, quiet, be still. Just as one might say to an annoying puppy dog. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. Notice the double miracle there. The wind stops, which could happen naturally, but the chopping of the waves wouldn't wouldn't go calm straight away. It's immediately calm. Jesus has power over the wind and the waves. And there he stands in a completely calm and tranquil lake. Now, this is interesting, what happens next. He says to them, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? And at that point, they are terrified. 
If there's one thing that's more frightening than the wind and the waves and the storm, it's Jesus. Those who are closest to him, those who know him best, are terrified of Jesus at this point. And they ask each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. And as uh, devout Jewish men who know their Bible, they know there is only one person in the universe who can control the wind and the waves. It says it in several places in the Old Testament, and it is God, the one and only, the Almighty, the one who lives in heaven and does as he pleases. God alone can control the wind and the waves. So this is now Jesus they've seen at another level, we might say. Okay, we've seen him do some amazing healings. We've seen him cast some demons out. We've heard his teaching. But now he's controlling nature effortlessly. He just stands up and speaks and the wind and the waves die down. Now this is the other side of Jesus. Talked a moment ago about his humanity. Here is his divinity, clear as crystal for all to see who understand the Bible. In the Old Testament, only God can calm the raging storms and seas. And Jewish people believed that the sea, particularly, was the place of chaos and disorder and a representative of evil and all that destroyed life. And they didn't like the sea. They weren't a seafaring people. And here we have, echoing in the background, the creation story where God brings out the earth from the chaos waters and establishes life on earth. And we have an echo of the Exodus story where God brings his people through a new creation by separating the waters of the Red Sea and bringing them through on dry land. And we have an echo of the Psalms where God calms the raging seas. And we have an echo of the book of Daniel where the sea is is the place that the monsters come out. The evil oppressive dictators and empires that would crush God's people. And here Jesus calms them all. The disciples see this. Yet still they have no faith. How like us the disciples are. And therefore their hearts respond as they do. Lord, don't you don't care about me? And Jesus is very serious about this. He says to them in verse 40, you can translate it, why are you still cowardly? You should know better. You should know better by now. They've seen enough to know how powerful Jesus is, haven't they? They've seen enough to know that Jesus really loves them and is committed to them. So the first thing we learn about faith here, you ready? Lesson number one, faith in Jesus is not automatic. It is not a feeling or an impulse. Rather, it is something that must be exercised. It is not passive, just kind of sit back and trust and wait for a serene feeling waiting for the storm to go away it is active faith must be active it must take action to apply what I know about Jesus Christ and what I know about God and what I've experienced of him in my own life and and apply it now and you know when you really find it hard to do that is the storm It's when those things come into your life that just take your legs out from underneath you and all your confidence trains away. The storms come and it will be a different storm for every one of you. Notice that following Jesus and getting in the boat with him isn't a guarantee that there's never going to be a storm again. If only it was like that. No. Following Jesus and getting in the boat with him means they sail into the heart of the storm. 
And he lets them struggle with it for a while before he wakes up and deals with it and rebukes them. Jesus is basically saying, I've been giving you everything you need for faith. But when the storm came, you didn't exercise it. You didn't apply it. You didn't take what you know of me and seen of me and put your trust in me consciously. And so you lost your courage when the storm came. And it showed that your faith wasn't strong enough or deep enough. And it had not been exercised enough. So it wasn't fit enough. So let me ask, friends, those of us here who are followers of Jesus, what about you? Has a storm come? In the past, or maybe right now, something's come in and taken your legs out from under you. Something that you trusted in and thought you could build your life on is gone or is questionable. And all your courage drained away. Your faith must not be passive. You must take action. Take what you know about Jesus from his word and what you've seen of his work in your life already and apply it to the storm now. You must do it. You can be a true disciple and still not have faith. That's the disciples. Secondly, demons. We're back to demons again. Of course, uh, many people in our modern world struggle with the idea of demons. Although, interestingly, not so much with angels. Uh, angels are making quite a big reappearance in popular culture, films, and uh, TV programs. Remember Robbie Williams? I'm loving angels instead. Maybe it's because angels are benign and non-denominational. But demons, I've spoken a bit about this previously in the series, you can't go into too much depth. If you struggle with the idea of demons, okay, but if we're going to accept that there could be, there is, a spiritual being called God, then we have to accept that logically there could be other spiritual beings that we can't see. First point. Second point, if Jesus Christ, who's the authority source for us, uh, believed in and taught that there were demons and, and dealt with them, then we have to accept that too. We can't pick and mix which bits of Jesus we want. And thirdly, if you look at the world, if you look at individual acts of horrendous evil or systemic evil across regimes like Nazi Germany or those who uh, butchered people in the Rwandan genocide, you have to say that surely there's something evil that's bigger than just individual people. That's just on demons. Okay, so here they are, chapter 5. They went across the lake... And uh, they think, oh, okay, we can calm down a bit now and just relax, you know. We got that storm out of the way. Okay, ego's a bit bruised, realised they didn't have enough faith, but at least we're going to go over to the... No, Jesus is not going for a, a little recreational jolly over to the other side of the lake. He's going into a place that's mostly non-Jewish, Gentile territory, and it's a place, we find out later on, it's near the Ten Towns. One of those you'd know, the, the town Damascus, and scholars differ on which the other ten, the other nine were. But Jesus is going over there. And this actually, as we read the story, is more like an invasion into enemy territory. And Jesus is forming a, a, a bulkhead, a breach into Gentile territory. Because no sooner do they get over there than they, this man sees them from a distance who lives in the tombs. And it, I mean, he's just a horrendous 
character. It says a man with an impure spirit, he comes out and it says that he lived in the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with chains, because he'd often been chained hand and foot, but he could tear the chains apart and break the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and the hills, he's crying out and cutting himself with stones to get some kind of gruesome relief from the pain that's inside him because he's possessed by unclean spirits. And he sees Jesus from a distance and he comes running. I mean, can you imagine? He's just getting out of the boat and this guy runs out. And he falls down on his knees and shouts at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. What is going on here? This is the most powerful demonic force we've seen yet in Mark's gospel. And a fascinating interaction unfolds. These demons start to negotiate. Now, there's several things going on here. First thing they do is the man drops to his knees. It looks like he's being humble and submissive, but he's actually trying to play, or they are trying to play, for uh, the ability to stay in the region. They then, uh, people at, at that time in the ancient world, those who believed in magic and spirits and so on, would often believe that if you could get the name of somebody, then you could gain some sort of spiritual control over them. So they deliberately use Jesus' name. And then they, they try the, the ultimate trick, which is to, to do some God talk. So they even say, in God's name, don't torture me. So they're trying to claim, this is kind of bizarre, isn't it? Claim God's support for their remaining in possession of this man. It's, it's, you know, think about it, it's not a strategy Jesus is ever going to agree with. <laughs> but here they are. And Jesus... Uh, Engages with the man. He asks, what's your name? Now, they, again, they won't give, give their name. They say, they give a number. My name is Legion, which is a Roman military unit, 6,000 foot soldiers. My name is Legion, for we are many. What a ghastly description of somebody whose life has been completely taken over by evil and their personality destroyed and is now at the beck and call of forces that are beyond our understanding. My name is Legion. And they beg, again and again, begging not to send them out of the area. And then Jesus does this interesting thing. He gives them permission. They, they make this request to go into a herd of pigs. There's a large herd of pigs there feeding on the hillside. And they beg, send us out among the pigs. Allow us to go into them. And so he gives them permission and maybe they think they can stay around because they're in the pigs now, but it's, a, it's a, a ploy that doesn't work because the pigs are so spooked that they turn into lemmings and they all rush down the hill and into the lake and are drowned. 2,000 pigs! It's extraordinary. Now, to early Jewish readers, this was a fitting end for some unclean spirits because they had good reasons to loathe swine. They thought they're unclean, they should go into them. But for modern readers, this does look like animal cruelty or reckless damage of property. But notice, Jesus doesn't send the pigs to their death. The demons do. And in so doing, this provides us with a powerful illustration of the severity of evil in the world. 
It's so evil, this force, that it can take down all these animals. It took much carnage to free this one man. And in our concern for the pigs, let's not be like the townspeople who were more concerned about their animals than the man. Now, what do we learn here about faith? You're thinking, I hadn't noticed any faith. (laughs) Here's the interesting thing. The demons have great theology. They are the ones who identify exactly who Jesus is, son of the Most High God, and they call on God's name. They even do some God talk, but mere knowledge is not enough. So, faith has content. It is about believing the truth. It is based on evidence that you can weigh and assess. All of that is good and necessary, but, but information and data and knowledge is not enough on its own. James 2 verse 19 says, You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. So let me ask again, what about you? In a room this size, it's possible for people to be here who actually have correct theological opinions about God. You've got great doctrine. Maybe some were brought up in a Christian family. You've been, you received the Bible with your mother's milk. You could answer the questions at Sunday school. You know the word. You can split hairs on certain doctrines. You can find whether somebody believes this or that. People can do all of that and not actually have true faith. And one thing that shows them for who they are is that there's no change. There's no change in them. Remember how we started talking about Harry Ironside and the people whose lives were transformed? See, a hallmark of true faith is not that you're really, really clever and know all your doctrine, but that you're changing. Martin Luther's first thesis of the 95 Theses nailed to the door of the church in Wittenberg was all of life is repentance. Never stop turning to Jesus when you become a Christian. It's not about praying a prayer when you're eight years old on a camp and then I just carried on. No, no, we turn to Jesus every single day. The mark of true faith is not just knowledge, although it's not less than that. It is knowledge that's applied and changes the person. Demons. Okay, thirdly, finally, denizens. The townspeople. Isn't this extraordinary? Let's pick up the story here in verse 14. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside and the people went out to see what had happened, as they would. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there dressed and in his right mind and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. And then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. Isn't this extraordinary? They prefer their swine to their saviour. One who can restore the most wounded and damaged person stands in their midst. One who can take this guy who was on the ultimate asbo and was kept out in the tombs, living in the unclean places, hanging around with the corpses, 
possessed by spirits. This man who's self-harming. He's, out, he's now here, he's dressing in his right mind, smiling and engaging. And, and, and yet they want Jesus to leave now. It seems that profit is more important than people. And the most sobering thing about this is that Jesus says, okay, I'll go. And he leaves. Lesson. Faith is more than just seeing the power of Jesus. It is about being willing to let him in and take charge of your life. The biggest problem these people have is not that they haven't seen evidence of Jesus' power. They've got it in spades. They've seen the destruction of the pigs and they've seen the man changed. They've got all the evidence they want. They've got Jesus right with them. Their biggest problem is that they don't want to lose control. You see, Jesus is capable of anything. If you let him into your life, he could require anything of you. And that fear alone keeps many people on the outside. So what about you? Where are you in this game of faith? Are you on the pitch? I'm not asking how well you're playing. But are you on the pitch following Jesus? Or are you sitting in the, the, the tiered seats, looking on, but thinking, I don't want to get too close to Jesus because I don't know what he's going to ask of me. And I really want to be in control of my own life. You could reach a point where Jesus just says, okay, goodbye. And then it'll be too late. So we thought about the de- disciples, the demons, and the denizens of the town. What have we learned about faith? It's not a simple thing. The great German reformer and theologian Martin Luther said that faith has three parts. Knowledge, assent, and trust. Knowledge, knowing, believing the right things about God. Assent, Obeying, submitting, going along with what you believe, and trust. Loving trust that will put the weight of our life in the hands of Jesus. Question 21 of the Heidelberg Catechism says this. What is saving faith? And gives this answer. True faith is not only sure knowledge, whereby I hold for true all that God has revealed in his word, but also firm confidence which the Holy Spirit works in my heart by the gospel, that not only to others, but to me also, remission of sins, everlasting righteousness, and salvation are freely given by God, merely of grace, only for the sake of Christ's merit. What is true faith, saving faith? Not only sure knowledge, but firm confidence. Is there anyone in our story who has faith like that? Did you spot anyone? who has faith like that in the story? I think so. It's the demoniac. It's the man. Look at how he responds to Jesus. He assumes the the position and the posture of a disciple, sitting, wanting to learn. He comes to the boat as Jesus is leaving and he asks to be a disciple. I want to come with you. Disciples are the ones who are with Jesus. And notice his response to not getting his own way. He doesn't get what he asks for. He wanted to be with them. He wants to be with the twelve. He wants to be there following Jesus. And Jesus says to him, no, not for you. My call for you, dear brother, is to go back to your family, back to your hometown, 
back to your people and be a witness for me there. Off you go. And he obeys. Verse 20 is faith in action. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and all the people were amazed. We don't even know his name, but this former demon-possessed man becomes the first apostle to the Gentiles. He listened and obeyed the call of Jesus for his life. And may I ask if there's someone here who is asking Jesus to, to do one thing with their life, but all the evidence is pointing that Jesus is calling you to something else. Are you prepared to obey him in that? Look, we've all got faith. We all have faith. We all put our faith in someone or something. The question is what? Where are you putting your faith? In other words, what are the people or things in your life that you're resting everything on? The people that make you secure. The people or the things that, that give you your identity, that make you feel significant that you are somebody. That is what you're putting your faith in, maybe unconsciously. Anything you put your faith in, you're going to serve and it will become your master. For instance, the family. If your hope of a safe place in the world is totally invested in a family, getting married, having children, seeing your children succeed, then you're putting faith in a family. But it is not a good master, because family never lives up to our expectations, marriage never lives up to our expectations, so I've heard, and people <laughs> disappoint us, or they can be taken away from us. It is not able to bear the weight of your life, friends. Another example, career. If your career is becoming your master, it's, you know this because you're overworking. It's driving you to overwork. You're neglecting other things for the sake of your work. You're kidding yourself about the effects it's having on you and your friendships and your life and your health. It's eroding you. It's a bad master. Don't put your faith in your career. Sexual fulfilment. The hope that some experiences in life will make my life worthwhile. Money. People devote themselves to this master of money and find that they never have enough and it's insecure. Any master except Jesus Christ will demand your life from you and then destroy you bit by bit. Like that man. Only Jesus will restore you to full humanity. And the paradox is that he asks you to give yourself to him entirely, holding nothing back. You lose control to him. And then you find that you are restored. As we submit to his lordship, he surrounds us and brings us into his kingdom. And we become new. Put your faith in anyone except Jesus and you will see your life slowly unravel. The demoniac is an extreme picture of all of us. Before we know Jesus, we're wrapped up in ourselves. We're living in our own tiny world. Our passions are out of control. We harm ourselves. We are unclean. C.S. Lewis wrote of his reluctant journey from being an atheist to Christian faith in a book called Surprised by Joy. And he wrote, For the first time in my life I examined myself with a serious purpose. And there I found what appalled me. He looked inside himself. He found a zoo of lusts, a bedlam of ambitions, a nursery of fears, 
a harem of fondled hatreds. My name was Legion. We're all like that. Have you seen that about yourself? A zoo of lusts, a bedlam of ambitions, a nursery of fears, and a harem of fondled hatreds. My name was Legion. Well, how do people like us get to being sitting, clothed, and in our right mind? The biggest story of Mark will give us the answer. At the end of the story, Jesus himself will end up naked, isolated, outside the town, among the tombs, shouting incomprehensible things as he's torn apart on a cross by the standard Roman torture, his flesh torn to ribbons by the sharp stones in the Roman lash. And that cross, Mark is saying, is how the demons will be dealt with. That cross is how our sin will be dealt with. That cross is ultimately how healing will take place. Jesus is coming to share our plight and trouble, to let the enemy do its worst to him, to take the full force of evil on himself so that others will go free. And so we need true faith in him, who loved us so much that he did that, he's certainly not going to let you down now. Whatever the storm is at the moment that's blowing through your life and shattering your shack in the cornfield, we need true faith. Faith in Jesus. Faith in his cross, his work carried out there for me. Let's pray and sing and then come to the Lord's table. Would you join me in prayer? Thank you.